Hello and welcome to Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm your host, Nora Santivani, and today I have the pleasure of hosting Jahangir Aziz, head of our Emerging Market Economics Group. Uh, welcome, Jahangir. How are you? I'm good. How are things? In yeah. oh, good. Freezing out here in New York, by the way. Yes, here too, here too, unseasonable. Okay, so in uh, today's uh, research wrap, we want to talk about China mm. and specifically spillovers from China to the rest of the world. Uh, Johangir, you have helpfully published uh, uh, an excellent research report on this theme. And uh, you know, as a China expert, you're well positioned to walk us through how we should be thinking about this. So when we think about China, you know, by all accounts, China's reopening um, from after its zero COVID policy has been earlier, faster, and more widespread than expected. We have you know, dramatically changed the near-term growth outlook in our forecast. We're now expecting China to deliver 7% annualized growth in the first half and 5.6% uh, growth for the full year. You know, at the same time, it's hard not to be a little bit disappointed in terms of the impact this very strong reopening uh, uh, momentum has had. We haven't seen much of an impact on things like commodity prices or asset prices as one would have expected. What are your right. thoughts? So I think, you know, if the second largest economy opens up in the manner in which it has done, which is, you know, ripping off the Band-Aid all at once, which was not in anyone's um, forecast in back in November, even everybody thought there was going to be a very calibrated opening, but clearly it was, you know, everything everywhere all at once. Um, and, you know, after three years of being locked down, the second largest economy opens up, there is natural to expect the market to have a lot of exuberance, right? And I think the market did have a lot of exuberance. It was natural to have it. Maybe it you know, got disappointed in the first months of this year, largely because you really do not have any real activity data that can confirm any of the reopening impact. Uh, China typically has this lunar year issue where it won't publish January data till uh, March when it publishes both January and February data. And that will take us into the second week of March. All that we have right now is the survey data. And again, you know, look at the survey numbers that came out last night. I mean, they are moving in the right direction. We are seeing a meaningful pickup taking place. Um, as you know, uh, Nora, we do publish twice a week these reopening trackers, which are basically alternative data sources. And, uh, you know, in the first you know, couple of weeks of January or even after the lunar holiday, there was a sense of disappointment that things were not really moving at the pace that we were expecting it to move. Housing market, for example, transactions were not picking up. But look at the last two weeks. Things have actually broadened down. Things have picked up. So I would suggest that we just need to be a little bit more patient. Let the data come in. Let the confirmation come in. And I think, as the PMI number showed, it is going to be a very strong reopening. Okay, so it's happening. We need to be patient, just like with inflation, right? We have to be patient. All right, so uh, in terms of, you know, what this strong growth in China is going to do to the rest of the world, right? We're, we're calling this spillovers. 
Now, our forecast for China growth this year, as I mentioned, is 5.6%. That's up quite significantly from where we thought it would be. Say back in December, we were forecasting something like 4%. Typically, such a large uplift in the world's second largest economy would have had a meaningful impact on our growth estimates for the rest of the world. So I think what's striking uh, with that in mind is that we barely made any upward revisions to our forecast for the rest of emerging markets on the the back of this strong rebound in China. Our forecast for EMX China growth this year remains stuck at a soft part 2%. So either we're wrong <laughs> in our forecast <laughs> and uh, growth in the rest of EM will be um, much stronger than we think, or we're right and something has changed in the relationship. So what's going on here? Why might this time be different? So like every other two-handed economist, I will say that there's a bit of both. Uh, so let's start with the first uh, uh, point that you raised, which is that here is China lifting. Uh, forget about how we revised our growth forecast, up, but you just look at the growth numbers of last year. It was 3%. This year is 5.6%. You know, 250 basis points increase in the second largest economy. And we, are not have, we don't have anything close to that uh, for the emerging market world, which is supposed to be tied to the China cycle. Uh, and this goes against this very grain of thought that when China uh, uh, growth rises, it lifts all EM boats. When China catches a cold, uh, sneezes, uh, emerging market uh, catches a cold. And that has by and large been true for the last 15 years. And I think the question therefore becomes why is it different this time? If you go back and look at what have been the drivers of China's growth over the last 15 years, typically, they have been industrial production, they have been uh, exports, and they have been investment. And emerging market by supplying intermediate manufacturing or intermediate raw materials is very closely tied to these cycles. This time around, if you look at what the dominant driver of the recovery is going to be, it's going to be consumption. And that too is going to be consumption of services because that was what was really beaten down in the two and a half years of lockdown that we've seen. And that's the one that's going to pick up. An emerging market, apart from tourist centers like Thailand or Egypt, isn't really tied to the consumption cycle. In fact, China's consumption cycle is pretty much based on domestic consumption, right? Apart from you know, tourism and education foreign education, foreign tourism. Uh, and therefore, I think the impact is going to be less on emerging market than what is suggested by just the headline growth. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. Okay, so you're talking about the importance of... Yeah, that's what I think is a dissonance. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're basically, what you're saying is we need to focus on more on the sources of growth, right, rather than headline growth overall. Now, I mean, how do we even go about estimating this? Because <laughs> we know that the quality of China data can be a bit patchy at times, um, to say the least. Um, do we even have enough data to come up with these numbers? So, so, let, so let me, let me uh, break up that issue into two parts, right? Uh, so before we even go to uh, figuring out how the composition of growth in China affects emerging market, we actually do have an unresolved issue, which is how does even headline growth in China affect emerging markets? Um, typically, as I said, you know, uh, 
you could run these regressions of China growth and emerging market, and you would get a very nice large beta coefficient where 1% higher China growth is going to give you a reasonably large increase in emerging market. The problem is that that relationship in the first place has actually been altered. So if you look at, you know, the phase when China just entered the WTO to about, let's say, 2012, so let's say 2002 to 2012, in that period of time, uh, much of this very strong correlation between China and emerging markets, which was based on, you know, China exporting to developed markets, it needed inputs, both raw materials, intermediate goods, which is what the emerging markets provided, which is how the global supply chain expanded. Ultimately, it was developed market growth that was driving everything. It wasn't really China as an independent source of demand. So the very strong link between China and emerging markets during that first 10 years through exports was essentially a uh, China acting as a conduit between developed market and emerging market. What changes after 2012 is when China itself changes its growth, growth model. So from 2012 onwards, uh, you know, after those two very years, 2009 and 10, when China provided massive amounts of credit and fiscal support, there was a realization within China that they had, China was overly dependent on exports as the only engine of growth, and there was a deliberate policy and reform-based effort uh, to shift away China's dependence on uh, export as only driver of growth to more domestic drivers, so more consumption, and even an in investment, it was about housing, it was about infrastructure. And at the same time, as you know, we all know that post-GFC developed market growth actually slid down. And the combination of the two meant that the impact of China on emerging market actually in relative basis became even stronger compared to that of developed market. And uh, within that relationship between China and developed market China and emerging market ex-China, it was no longer the case that it was all driven by developed market demand. It was now China's genuine yeah. consumption investment demand that was driving. So even in the first headline growth to impact of China in itself, uh, from 2012, there has been a shift that has taken place. China no longer is just the conduit. China is now an independent driver of emerging markets. That's right. So it's an independent driver of growth, but as I as we mentioned, the composition matters yes. a lot. Right? So it matters yeah. what the sources of that growth are, right? Yes. So what, how should we think about the sources of China growth and which are the sources that matter more for EM? In this so, yeah, I mean, again, it would, be, it would have been a reasonably easy exercise. All one had to do was to look at look at every quarter's growth in China, look at consumption, investments, government purchases, exports, and imports, and instead of using headline growth as the uh, as a China proxy, we would use these as a China proxy, and that would be more or less what we had to do. 
the problem is that um, for a large number of years now, China no longer publishes quarterly real GDP breakdown from the demand side. So if you look at China's GDP, published GDP numbers every quarter, you get the headline GDP numbers. What you do not get is you do not get consumption, investment, exports, and imports on a quarterly basis. So that's the first problem. Uh, you could then try and use proxies, like you could use retail sales, you could use fixed asset investment, which are all on a monthly high frequency basis as proxies for it. But, you know, the proxies don't really work that well in terms of, uh, you know, being consistent with GDP growth. For example, last quarter. Last quarter, we had this, you know, three straight months of decline in retail sales, yet last quarter's GDP consumption was actually up. And therefore, there's a lack of inconsistency between high-frequency numbers and how they are translated into GDP numbers. That's so, right. Okay, so what did we end up with in the end? What did you go with in your, in your model? <laughs> we didn't much of a choice but to go back and look at the supply side. So okay. China does publish numbers from the supply side. So agriculture, construction, mm -hmm. uh, industrial production, services, etc. And we basically use that, those as a proxy uh, for looking at the composition of Chinese growth. And what we really looked at was three broad categories. One was industry or industrial production. The other was construction activity, and the other was services. We did not use agriculture because that's you know it's a reasonably small part of the Chinese economy and doesn't really fluctuate that much. So that's how we got around this data problem, and we ended up using just those three variables as the uh, proxy for the overall composition of China's growth. Right, so which of these ended up mattering the most for EM growth? If I had to guess without looking at the numbers, I would have guessed IP and construction both would have been quite important. Is that, that right? Yeah, so that's basically what we go into, you know, thinking about it. I mean, think about the usual uh, thing that we talk about China, you know, shiny roads, massive amount of infrastructure, huge, you know, 100-storied uh, skyscrapers all over China being done, housing being such a large part of it. And you would expect construction activity to have the one of the biggest impact on, uh, on, on, on emerging market um, growth through commodity prices, through imports of commodities, and obviously industrial production, right? We know. Industrial production being the big driver of uh, Chinese exports, etc., and you would expect services not to have uh, much of an impact because services, you know, it's very, very uh, domestic basis, usually non-tradables. And what we do find some confirmations and some rejections of this broad hypothesis, right? <laughs> we do get con we get an easy confirmation. Services do not play a big role in transmission of Chinese growth into emerging markets. And we do get a confirmation that industrial production does play a very, very big role in transmitting uh, activity, uh, pace of activity in China to the rest of emerging markets. And that's where, and then we get this rejection that construction doesn't really play as big of a role as we thought or we would have expected. Is, is that because the, the impact of construction shows up through industrial production? Is that the reason? Precisely, precisely. 
So China isn't the country that goes and let's say, just by, as an example, goes and purchases or imports copper cables mm -hmm. for its construction or for its uh, you know uh, construction activity. It actually imports raw copper and then converts it into copper cables domestically. So unless industrial production in China is reacting to construction activity or the no, whether it goes up or goes down, it doesn't really show up in emerging market uh, growth. So you're exactly right. Um, because of the nature of production in China, almost everything that happens in construction activity actually gets, gets captured by industrial production. So the bottom line being that even whether you're a commodity exporting country or whether you're a manufacturing exporting country, the impact of China growth for both is to industrial production. And that's reason, that's why I think, you know, uh, March data of what happened to industrial production in uh, January and February this year is going to be that much important, which is why I think the PMI becomes so important. Mm. No, exactly. So look, so you've made the point that uh, IP matters the most, China IP matters the most for the rest of EM growth and services growth matters less. So that's fine. But when we think about in terms of what's actually recovering in China this year, it's, it's isn't it fairly broad based? So we do have some pickup in IP. It's not just a services driven recovery, right? I mean, even if you look at, um, you know, the housing market, it's weak, but it's starting to bottom, you know, transactions are turning higher. So wouldn't we expect this to feed through into kind of stronger growth elsewhere in EM? It's not just services, right? Where am I wrong? No, you're not. And I think that what you are, what you are alluding to is, uh, what is the risk bias that we should have about China's recovery? So let's let's put the numbers into play, right? So we have seven, seven and a half percent growth rate for the first half. That sort of slows down to six percent in the second half, right? Uh, now, if you look at how Hyben, who's a, our chief economist, his team, a China chief economist, his team has put together numbers, we have done what all most economists will do, right? We look at the known things. What is tangible? And what is tangible is that consumption is going to go up, service is going to go up, industrial production will also go up because it's going to feed into consumption and uh, investment. So you do have in that 5.6% headline growth number, you have industrial production going up around five and a half, six percent 6% also. Uh, what we, as you and I know well, that you know there is a large part that is a known and the known unknown being that you know business sentiment has a very large impact on the way in which investment plans are done the way in which consumption is done and it is almost impossible either to actually figure out how much impact business sentiment will have on investment and clearly we want to move away from that and as you pointed out i think the manner in which this recovery is taking place the fact that after two, two and a half years of being locked down, you are getting the second largest economy opening up. And I think something that we, we you and I have spoken about written, and, and written about it, which is the excess savings in emerging markets being a source of resilience. Jian, who is part, of our, uh, is part of our China team, recently wrote a note about what is the stock of excess savings and there's almost like a four and a half trillion RMB stock of excess savings sitting there. So if I put all of these two 
all of these things together, I think that the risk is not biased to the downside, even though the market may have been disappointed so far, because I think the market was expecting something too, too, too quickly. Uh, I think that the risks are biased upwards, that you are going to see a reasonably larger pickup in IP. And if that happens, I think uh, most of emerging market will actually benefit from that uh, pickup taking place. And so I would actually think that there is upside risks to emerging market growth coming out of China and which I'm guessing makes your life a little bit more difficult since you are the one who in JP Morgan keeps, keeps looking at inflation and the twists and turns and that you know growth is going to be probably stronger than what we have in our forecast for emerging markets. Right, so yeah, the argument we're making here is the full impact of reopening is going to be larger than the sum of the parts, and the parts themselves might be stronger as well, right? Yeah. Effectively, that's what we're saying. And so beneficiaries of this, I mean, if we get kind of stronger manufacturing investment, that could affect, I guess, the rest of the region, you know, places like Korea, ASEAN. Yes. Um, we also see the improvement in sentiment, capital flow, so it could be quite uh, wide-ranging in terms of its uh, impact. I mean, we don't want to turn this into an inflation conversation, but you know what we've argued is that the main uh, transmission from China reopening to global inflation would be through commodity prices, and for uh, for what it's worth, we haven't moved our commodity price forecast higher. Um, on the back of this at this point. Although China inflation itself is clearly uh, accelerating and we are seeing um, impact on things like tourism prices and some service prices in the rest of Asia. All right, so uh, how about, I mean, one other thing, I, one other point I wanted to hit on, I guess, is this idea of growth volatility as well, right? So in China, that's been a pretty important aspect in the past that volatility had been quite high that might be changing now so does that this kind of feed into this idea that you know there's going to be an improvement in willingness to invest if that volatility goes down um, we get a bit more predictability here and maybe we can talk a bit about the more slight term outlook and by that I mean 2024 at which point we at JP Morgan are putting a pretty high probability on a global recession happening whether it's a mild one towards the end of this year or a deeper more synchronized one globally in 24 can China save us from a recession given this strong growth that we've uh, talked about here well one hopes so um, but 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 let me but I'm, but I'm glad that you reminded me of the first uh, point I think there's an there's an important point right so uh, when, when, when I talked about that this changing role of China where China now becomes an independent driver of the of, of emerging market uh, I think if you just look at the chart of China's growth you don't have to do anything you know crazy just look at the growth of China's quarterly growth you'll find that China till about 2018, right? Which is the beginning of the US-China trade war. So it precedes the pandemic thing. China was this, you know, almost a straight line, high straight line growth, right? Seven and a half, eight percent with almost no volatility for a significantly large number of years from around 2012 onwards. And therefore it became a very strong anchor Mm -hmm. for external demand for both commodity exporters as well as manufacturing exporters. And then starting from the beginning of the US-China trade war, but being massive, but that being exaggerated significantly during the pandemic, the volatility in growth 
probably went up about four or five times. And I think this additional volatility coming out of the biggest driver of your external demand meant that people in uh, emerging market who had business plans that were based on China demand just couldn't do that. And I think that even if China does not go back to the pre-pandemic growth path of the sevens and eight, the mere fact that the volatility is going to go down because of the reopening. And China is, China is not going to have this massive, you know, one quarter plus 13, next quarter minus, uh, minus seven growth rates. Means that I think the business sentiment, which is where I was talking about business sentiment, I think this is an important part of that. You can now make these business plans. So things that were on hold in, in China as well as in emerging markets, right? Both, both places. And in particular, I think, uh, if you look at uh, manufacturing uh, investment in China, which is about 30% of total investment, that actually slowed down quite a bit in the pandemic. And I think that is where I think within China is the biggest scope of the upside risk coming from the fact that things are going to look much more normal than it was over the last three years. And I think that's a big thing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I don't think that's, I guess, fully appreciated or fully in current forecast. When I look at our forecast for China GDP levels, uh, you know, we stood three and a half percent below the pre-crisis potential path at the end of last year. And this year, we're expecting only a third of that shortfall to be made up. Um, and then yep. there's no further closing of the gap in 2024 at all in our forecast. So I think, I think, you know, clearly with everything we've discussed here, uh, risks to that are, are probably to the upside. And this point you mentioned about growth volatility uh, coming off is going to uh, help to reduce risk and um, boost sentiment elsewhere. Okay, that's probably a good place to end unless we've missed anything. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I, I would just say that, you know, you asked the question of medium-term growth. That's a completely different... Uh, yeah, which we may not have time to get into here. No, I, I think it would be unfair to when I put two sentences... <laughs> <laughs> That's a much more complicated topic. Um, I'll be happy to come by to do another podcast with you on that, or we can even bring the China team uh, to talk about what they think about the medium-term growth system. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's leave it there then. Uh, thank you, Jahangir, very much for uh, joining me, and thank you to our listeners for listening to the Global Data Pod. We hope to continue the conversation on the next episode of the Research Hour.